morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up the second set. This is for the podcast. So do you remember a couple years ago how popular these things were? Right? Remember a few years ago, these were everywhere? These are called photo mosaics. And obviously, this is a picture of three beautiful Indian girls. And I really thought these were just very creative pieces of art. Now, on the one hand, you can't really say that this is a picture, because if you know anything about these photo mosaics, as you zoom in, it's not just one picture, but it's thousands and thousands of pictures that have been kind of carefully curated to match the hue, the color, the shape, so that when you finally assemble them together, those thousands of pictures you, you don't even see anymore, but you now see the one big picture, right? Remember these? They were everywhere. Well, Second Samuel chapter 5 is a lot like this. 2 Samuel 5 is a bunch of pictures coming together to reveal a larger picture. In some sense, you can say that 2 Samuel 5 is a mosaic of the kingdom. Now, if you've read this chapter in advance, what you're going to find is that 2 Samuel 5 is made up of six vignettes that are all brought together by the narrator to communicate something very important to us. And that is, at long last, God's promises to Israel to David and, and even to Abraham have come to pass. Now, the key to this chapter is right in the middle. So let me read you a couple of those key verses as we jump into our study. It's chapter 5, verse 10 and 12. This is what it says. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. This chapter, friends, is all about God's faithfulness and, in particular, God's faithfulness to his promises. Friends, I hope that is encouraging to you because God being faithful to his promises entails that God is faithful to his people. Now, 2 Samuel, the book, falls into that section of Scripture that's called the historical books. Now, what I want you to do is keep your finger in 2 Samuel 5 and then flip over to your table of contents. Flip over to your table of contents. Now, in the modern Old Testament, we divide the Old Testament into four chunks. And if you have a study Bible, they probably do that for you. If yours is a kind of a regular garden variety Bible like mine is, they just have them all together. So the Bible in the Old, the Old Testament is divided into four chunks. First, you have what's called the, the five books of the law, the Pentateuch. And so you see that that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. After that, you have what's called the historical works from Joshua all the way down to Esther. Those are the historical works. After the historical works, you have what's called the wisdom or the poetry section. And that's from Job all the way to the Song of Solomon. And after that, you have Isaiah, what's called the prophetic books, from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. Now, um, in the New Testament, when they're referring to the Old Testament, they basically just called it the law and the prophets. Sometimes you might hear them say, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, the reason this is important to talk a little bit about, you can go back to 2 Samuel 5, is because the book that we're studying and have been studying for a while is, is, is in what's called the historical works, the historical books. And ancient Near East history is not recorded the same way that we in the modern West record our history. See, in the modern West, in North America, Europe, and, and, and these countries, we, we have what I call the enlightenment hanging over us, and that is this belief that we can be 100% rational and objective science. Rationalism was the day, the order of the day. And so our history is just the facts, objective recording of what took place. Right? That, that's kind of our idea. But if any of you know history and study history, you know that's completely farcical. Because history, any history, has way too many events, 
people uh, perspectives to record them all. And so by the very fact that we choose certain events, certain individuals, certain perspectives, certain things to discuss, what we are doing is interpreting history and telling you what we find significant and important. So it's never 100% objective just recording what happened. It's telling a story, right? Now, in ancient Near East history, and I don't know if this is true of like Scandinavian history or Eastern Euro European history, I don't, I don't know, but in ancient Near East history, they knew they were telling a story. There were no bones about it. And so the way they recorded their history was events, people, individuals, symbols, themes, whatever it might be, that advanced the story that their history was going to tell. Which is why, um, like in Egyptian history, uh, as, as an example, many of these cultures do the same, they don't record their losses, right? So, I mean, they don't want to look like losers in history, so they don't record their losses in battle. Now, the reason I bring this up is, if you're not aware of that difference in history and you come to the Bible, you're going to be reading this, these historical books the way you anticipate our history functions. And you're going to be confused. You're going to get tripped up. And sometimes people say, see, the Bible doesn't make sense because that's not how this goes. Well, yeah, if you're a modern Western European person, that's not how you record history. But if you are an Israelite, if you're from the ancient Near East, this is exactly how you record your history. And we have seen this pattern already, believe it or not, in our study of 2 Samuel. Remember these three chapters, 2 to 5-ish, eight years of civil war. And in the eight years of civil war, there was only one recorded fight, one recorded skirmish or battle, and that was chapter two, because that chapter, that battle, captured the emotional, the political, the existential agony of the time. Chaos, confusion, brother fighting brother, cousin killing cousin, agony and misery, right? Well, in chapter 5, we have another one of those kinds of chapters where this one chapter is trying to communicate and care because it carries the weight of the time, except this time, it's, it's a much rosier picture. It's victory, security, and prosperity. What that means is the narrator is looking at all the events of, of er, the early monarchy at this period and putting them together, not necessarily in chronological order, but thematic order. So as an example, if you look at verses 13 and 16 of our chapter, they record all of David's sons that were born in Jerusalem. Now, common sense just tells you all those sons were born over a long period of time. But the way it flows in chapter 5, it's as if all that happened in this one segment and then they move on. It's because the narrator is putting themes together so we can see this broader picture. The reason I say that is, I know some of you are, as we say in Hawaii, akamai, you're really sharp. And you're going to notice some chronological jumps in the text. And I'm not really going to address them as I'm preaching because my job is to preach the, 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 the theme, the idea that the narrator wants to communicate. So one illustration, I showed you verses 13 and 16. You see this kind of chronological anomaly, like how can you have all these kids in just two verses? But you also see in verses 1 through 5, we'll read that in a little bit, where king is crowned Israel. And then in verse 6, he attacks and takes over Jerusalem. But then in verse 17, it says, and when, king, when David was crowned king, the Philistines attacked him. Well, if Dave, once David was crowned king and the Philistines attacked him, how does he have time to then go to attack Jerusalem and fight the Philistines? It doesn't make sense. Well... 
The narrator's trying to put together thematic ideas, being crowned king, unifying the land. Oh, yeah, and then he takes care of the Philistines. So just for those of you who are really studying and saying, this doesn't make sense, I'm aware of the chronological jumps. Most of you don't care, right? You're just like, give me the good stuff, and that's what we're going to do right now. So let's jump in and hear the story that this history is telling us. Now, here is the message. Here's the story the narrator wants you to know. God's promises are always fulfilled. I mean, if you don't get anything else from this chapter, these six vignettes, these six pictures to make a larger picture, this is the picture. God's promises are always fulfilled. And the way the narrator pushes that forward is by showing us in these three ways, verses 1 through 9, the kingdom has come. Verses 11 to 25, the kingdom has won. And then we want to think about what does the gospel have to do with this. And I think we see that in the center section, the king who serves. So let's take a look at them one at a time. And it begins in verses 1 through 5, as I said, as now all Israel recognizes David as God's anointed. Eight years of civil war has come to an end. I mean, how amazing is this? Let's pick it up in verses. We'll just read verses 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Let's stop there. You notice the, the all of Israel gathering together. It says all Israel and all the elders. It's really clear. We're all one on this. And they make three arguments why David actually should be their king. You see that in the verses. The very first argument they make, see it in verse 1. We're your bone and flesh. We're family. You're one of us. And this is in fulfillment of what God said the king ought to be. We go back to Deuteronomy 17, 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you. So they say, hey, David, we acknowledge it. We are family. You are in a compliance with Deuteronomy 17. You should be king. And then they give a second reason David should be king. And they said, hey, even when Saul was sitting on the throne, it was actually you. You went out before us. You brought us back from our battles. You fought for us. And this is in keeping with what a king's supposed to do, remember? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. That... And that our king may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. So the first reason was, in compliance with Deuteronomy 17, you're one of us. In compliance with 1 Samuel 8, you've been the one fighting our battles on behalf. And then the third reason, which is probably the most important reason, was you are by divine decree God's anointed. And that goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now it's that last reason. It was the... God is, or David is God's anointed, that is the most critical and climactic answer. The divine promise of God. God's promises are coming to pass at long last. Now, this is the challenge of when we're studying a book of the Bible, and we kind of go a week, or a chapter, a week, or some portion thereof, and we don't get a chance to just sit down and read the whole flow of the story. And I encourage you to do that. Uh, 2 Samuel will take you 90 minutes to read it. But when you do it that way, sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees, can't we? Because we're diving in and studying this one particular chapter. But let's take a moment and step back. 
to see what's happening in chapter 5. All the promises of God to David are now coming to fruition. What that must have been like. The obstacles and the resistance that were put before the promises of God. Like, for example, the, the venomous jealousy of Saul. Now, if you know 1 Samuel, a full one-third of the book is taken up, chapters 19 to 27. It's just taken up with Saul doing everything he can to stop David. That's all he does. It's like that's what his whole kingdom is consumed with, stopping David from becoming king. God's promises have overcome Saul's jealousy and his venom. God's promises have even overcome even David's sometimes foolish decisions. Remember 1 Samuel 25 when the ball from Carmel throws insults at David and David says, I'm, I'm not had it with this guy. I'm going to take him out. Now, it's not a capital crime to insult the king. So David's about to just wipe this guy out and kill innocent bloodshed until Abigail, Nabal's wife, calms David down and says, don't be guilty of shedding innocent blood. David's like, you're right. God's promises even overcome David's foolish decisions there, right? Or like when he said um, in chapter 27, I can't stand Saul following me. I'll go down to the Philistines and they'll protect me. That worked out until chapter 29 when the Philistines said, okay, now go fight against your own people. And David's like, now what am I going to do? But God delivered him from that. God's promises overcame Saul's jealousy. God's promises overcame David's foolishness. God's promises even overcame the rebellion from the north. Remember after Saul dies, how few people recognize God's anointed. Most of them rejected him. And so now that plunged the nation into eight years of civil war. And finally, God's promises even overcame um, some of David's friends trying to help him out. Remember that? Remember the Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1? Or Joab in uh, Samuel 3? Or uh, Baanai and Rechab in last week's passage? All these friends trying to help David out by engaging in violence and murder and subterfuge. And yet every one of these, the promises of God, overcame, overcame overcame. Yahweh's promises, friends, are certain no matter how much resistance they might meet. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can rejoice in that reality that God's will cannot be thwarted. What he intends, you and I cannot thwart, good, bad, or otherwise. Not people, not circumstances, not even ourselves, not your weaknesses, not your successes, not your failures can derail, deter, or defy the will of God. He will accomplish what he intends to. His promises cannot be stopped. And with one voice, we see here in 2 Samuel 5, these few verses here, with one voice the people proclaim God's anointed to be all their king. Now, friends, if... Verses 1 through 5 show us the promises of God cannot be stopped in spite of opposition or rebellion or deceit or foolishness. Verses 6 through 9 shows us the promises of God are certain in spite of past failures or the passing of time. In other words, no matter how long time has passed, God will not forget to be faithful to his word. Now, why do I say that? Keep in mind, it was... 800 years prior to the events we're studying, 
When God spoke to Abraham and told Abraham that, his, that he and his descendants would inherit the promised land, including Jerusalem, along with the rest of Cana, it would be theirs. And in verses 6 through 9, where David then goes up to Jerusalem and attacks Jerusalem and takes it over from the Jebusites, and now it becomes his capital, is the fulfillment of that promise. Now keep your finger, 2 Samuel 5, go with me, let's go to the beginning, Genesis 15. Let's get to, go to the source here. And I've taught you, if you want to understand the key chapters in Genesis, uh, regarding the covenant is chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, right? As a matter of fact, throughout this series in 2 Samuel, we've referenced one of these chapters pretty consistently. Here's chapter 15, God's kind of ratifying his covenant that he made originally in chapter 12. Listen to what the Lord says. Uh, pick it up. Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river. So the river of Egypt, some people think that's the Nile. That's, that's not correct. The river here, it's, it's probably more the river, I forget the name of it. It starts with an A. It's kind of by the Rafa Gate uh, near, near uh, and the edge of Egypt below Gaza right now. So that's the river Egypt, not the Nile. To the great river, the river Euphrates, so the river Egypt to the south, the river Euphrates is the north, those are the boundaries, north and south. The land of the Canaanites, the land of the Kezanites, the land of the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Prezerites, the uh, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now the Jebusites were the ones that occupied Jerusalem at the time. Now... I would be remiss if I don't at least acknowledge the very conflict that's happening, the war between Israel and Hamas, friends, is related to this same issue. And the issue being, who gets to call the land home? Okay? And friends, regardless of whatever your theological view is of national Israel in God's eschatological plan of, of, of things working out, regardless of what that might be, God clearly promised in Genesis 15 the physical descendants of Abraham would inherit the land, period. That includes Gaza. That includes the West Bank. And just so you know, um, the West Bank is the biblical tribal allotments of uh, Benjamin, Gilead, Gad, Manasseh, and I think Ishakar. So, and why is it called the West Bank now? Because in 1950, when the Kingdom of Jordan annexed the West Bank, they wanted to rid all associations with the land of Israel. And so those were the tribal allotments, but it was also more, more popularly called Judea and Samaria. So we don't want people calling it that anymore. So we're going to call it the West Bank because it's on the West Bank of the Jordan River. So there you go. So that's why it's called the West Bank. But when you read your Bible, whenever you're talking about Benjamin, Gilead, half-tribe of Manasseh, and Issachar, that's that area that we now call the West Bank. Now, that's about all I'm going to say on it. So those of you who are just like all into the prophecy stuff, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Because um, I, I want to preach the text, right? Not, not the newspaper. So, so here's why this is important. Now, here's a map I have. It's a, kind of a mm, wonky map. I don't, I don't have one better. But this shows the tribal allotments. What I want to point out to you is this. See this little red smudge? <laughs> you can't see it. It says Hebron. Remember in 2 Samuel 2, Hebron becomes David's kind of capital of the, of the south because he's the king of the south. Here's this other red smudge up here, right? That is Machanayim. That's where Ishbosheth made his like kingdom capital, so to speak, and for the ten tribes, up the ten tribes. Notice this other red smudge right here. You can't hardly see. There it is. There's that red smudge that you right there. That says Jerusalem. 
Now, on the map, it shows that Jerusalem's kind of in the border of Benjamin, but the reality is it really straddles both of it. So David chooses Jerusalem. Here's why. Now that he's king over all the nation, it's not wise to have his capital in Hebron because the, the, the tribes to the north will feel disenfranchised somewhat and the north will feel favorite. It's not wise to take Machaniah because then the people who originally supported him in the south would feel a little bit dissed as well. And so David being, as I said, Hawaiian, Akamai, smart, he knows the scriptures. He kills two birds with one stone. If I capture Jerusalem from the Jebusites, a, a city heretofore never, I was going to say never occupied by Israel, but that's not true because in Judges and Joshua, the Israelites sack the city and they hold it for a little bit. Then the Jebusites kick them out and it goes back and forth. They're never able to hold it. But by and large, David thinks, if I can get Jerusalem, that neither the northern tribes nor the southern tribes can call their own. That will be a politically shrewd move because it's right in the center of the nation. I can unify the nation and simultaneously fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham. And so what we see happening here is that now as David takes Jerusalem in verses 6 through 9, the land is finally one. O-N-E, right? Not W-O-N, although that could work too. <laughs> but now the people are one, bowing the knee to God's anointed. The land is one. No longer foreign enemies dividing the people of God. Now, friends, while David's kingdom is not at its full realization yet, the kingdom clearly has come. And the kingdom is winning. And we see it because now, the first time since uh, Joshua entered, we're talking centuries earlier, the people are unified. They're one again. And the land is all one land. Regardless of the challenges or the passing of time, God's promises, they will come to pass. He, he's not like you and I in that regard. He does not give up. He doesn't forget. He keeps his promises to his people. Now granted, did Abraham, did the promises come to pass in the way Abraham thought they were going to come to pass? Probably not. Did the promise to David to become king come to pass in the way he thought? Did, did David think from 1 Samuel 16 that it would be 25 years later, eight years of civil war, betrayed by his father-in-law, and go through all that heartache before he would become king in 2 Samuel 5? Probably not. But friends, God never guarantees we get what we like. But he promises to give us what we need. And recognizing that distinction is so important. That God doesn't guarantee to give you what you want. But he promises to give you what you need. And the reason to understand the distinction between those two is that your level of confidence in God working in your life is directly proportionate to your understanding of, of what he's working is supposed to look like. Friends, God never guarantees you ease. But he promises you comfort. God never guarantees you money. But he promises you riches. God never guarantees you health. But he promises you strength. God never guarantees you popularity. But he promises you acceptance. God never guarantees you romance. But he promises you love. God never guarantees you safety. 
but he promises security. God never guarantees you success, but he promises reward. In fact, God does not guarantee you any of the things that our culture says you need or you should want or you should desire. But God always promises the things you truly need. Friends, in in counseling, I always know we've turned a great corner when the counselee starts to realize something really significant. They start to realize that all their desires, many of their desires, their demands, their values, their expectations that they're, that they're living their lives by that determine whether or not they're successful or not, they should be happy or not. And when they start to realize, all the time they thought it was coming from in their hearts, from inside of them, and because it comes from inside of them, by de facto, it must be right, because if it comes from inside of me, my feelings never lie, so it must be right. When they start to realize, oh no, I've been, I've been lied to. So many of my desires, so many of my expectations, my demands, my values have really been coming from the world around me and have been shaping me and manipulating me to think, unless I get these things, I will not be happy or fulfilled. And they start to realize, I've been living by other people's values, the world's values, my flesh's values, the the world's demands, not not the Lord's. And I can prove it to you. Um, Maybe for you millennials and younger, you'll get this, like, Just the way we view dogs. For you people older like me, do you remember what dogs were? Yeah, they were the things with fleas that you kept outside to guard your house. That was a dog. Amen? Well, at least that's how I was in Hawaii. Now, dogs are what? They're like your kids, man. They're in your house. They have gourmet food. They sleep in your beds. And I'll be honest, guys, I'll be honest, I'm the same way. We had some friends over Saturday night, and there was my dog, Einstein. He had a little Halloween bandana, and he smelled pretty because he came back from the groomer where I spent more money to clean him than I spend on cleaning myself, you know. (laughs) And he sleeps in my bed. My other dog, Scrappy and Lightning Man, they just had fleas all over them, and they just stayed outside. Now they're in my house. What's happened? The world has told me. If you want to be a humane, enlightened individual, you'll care for your animal. I mean, that's true, right? But what that's translated is, I got to take them to Irvine Spectrum. I got to have them drive around in my car. I got to get them custom clothes. For Halloween, I should get them costumes. Good night. But the world has shaped me. Amen, millennials? Let's be honest. Dogs are just dogs, right? They're just dogs. I'm going to get hate mail. I know it. But... If you're older than a millennial, I have an illustration, you're not off the hook because it happened to you too. And I can show it to you, prove it to you in two words or one picture. The mullet. (laughs) Who said this was a good idea? But I'll bet you most of you men sported one of these if you lived through the 80s and 90s, didn't you? Even little kids were sporting this outfit so that we could look good. Who in the world thought this? What was the saying? Um... Business in the front, party in the back. Yes, did you date a man with a mullet? Yes, see? Lord, help us repent of mullets and rebellion in our hearts. But see, here's the funny thing. These are clearly 80s, 90s people. But it's coming back. Look, that's a new guy. But here's the reality. Women, you were not not immune to this either. Look at you guys. What in the world? Somebody told this young lady... Hey, it looks really good if you get all your hair, bunch it up on the corner, and look like turkey leg. And men will find you attractive. We all know, we're laughing now because that's how we looked. Why? Because the world told us, 
This is what it's like to be fashionable, beautiful, and attractive. Look at this one poor girl. She knows this is a mistake. Look at her face. She knows it's a mistake, but she's going to do it anyway. Guys, the world's pushing values into us, and they're telling us this is life, and it's not. Climate change doesn't come from carbon. Climate change came from the Aquanet that all these ladies use. It's my theory. My point simply is, to the degree, friends, that your values, your expectations, your understanding of what should life be is formed on the word of God, you will not be failed or embarrassed about it. To the degree you're living life by the values, expectations, and the desires that the world says, no, you need to do this. If you want to be part of the in crowd, if you want to be successful, if you want to be loved, if you want to be whatever it is, complete, you do this. In moments of sanity and times past, you will look back and say, Why was I th- what was I thinking? And those are just two illustrations of how those things didn't come whole cloth out of our hearts, but the world around us shaped us, and we followed suit. How many things in your life are being shaped by the word of God, and how many things are being shaped by the values around you? Do you even know? Friends, a very practical, helpful exercise. Go home today, sometime this week, and just write down, hey, what are the things I expect from God? What are the things I'm thinking I'm owed? And be honest with yourself. And then just ask yourself, hey, man, is is that line up with Scripture? Now, to be clear, like I said, God does some, makes us wonderful promises, but so often our expectations are shaped by the world and not by his word. So just like here in 2 Samuel 5, God's promises came to pass, not in the way David anticipated, not in the way Israel anticipated, not in the way Abraham did, but they did. The kingdom has come. But it also, the kingdom has won. So the next 15 verses of this chapter, we see how the kingdom has won in two major ways. There is peace within and without the borders and victory over their enemies. So we see in verse 11 immediately, uh, David is crowned king. This is one of those chronological jumps because the uh, king Hiram of Tyre, which is now modern-day Lebanon, comes into a treaty with them. That, That doesn't happen until much later in David's kingdom, but it's trying to show now that the king is enthroned, Things are changing. There is peace. And then there's another listing of, of all the sons born to David in Jerusalem. And there's no foreboding with, foreboding with these names like their last, name, last list we looked at, right? Did you notice also, though, Solomon appears in here. In fact, Solomon is David's successor. And he will rule over a kingdom with far greater blessing, a picture of God's blessings for the world far greater than David. If you're a note-taker, write down 1 Kings 10, when the queen of Sheba comes in and she says, I have heard, but nothing I have heard compares to the blessing of your reign. And she's a picture of all the nations coming to Zion to hear and be blessed by Zion's king. In verses 17 to 25, they include these two vignettes of battle, showing that Yahweh's promise in chapter 3 is already coming to pass. Remember what chapter 3 said, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And this section shows not only is Yahweh the defender of God's people, of his people, but it shows how he defends them, right? So uh, look at verse, the first is by guidance, and we see that verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, right? 
And then we see in verse 23, and David inquired of the Lord. Again, a stark contrast to Saul who did not inquire of the Lord. Seek godly counsel. Seek wisdom from God's word. Unlike the mullet, that will never go out of style. You will never be embarrassed for doing that. Friends, that should be a constant question you ask yourself. What does the word of God say about this? What does the scripture teach on this? Whatever situation you are facing, God has something to say, if not chapter and verse in principle. Friends, that's why we have a counseling ministry here. That's why we have coffee and conversation. Because godly counsel is essential to our lives. Even when things look good. A little sidebar, um, you remember when Joshua, a time of victory, Israel's going to the, the, the promised land, and they're just like winning everything. They're getting the promised land. And the Gibeonites, remember them, we talked about them last couple weeks, they realize, oh man, they're going to wipe out everyone. Let's pretend we come from a far off country and make a treaty with them, and then we're safe. And so they dress up in ratty clothes and everything, and they make it look like they came from a far across land, and they say, we heard of your great Yahweh and all his deeds. Make a treaty with us so we can be good neighbors. And Joshua and the leaders of Israel said, sounds like a good idea. But the author inserted one note, but they did not seek the Lord. And that benevolent mistake became a thorn in Israel's side for decades and decades and decades. When they found out, oh, these Gibeonites, they're not from a faraway country. They're like literally next door. Seek godly counsel. Because the world is giving you its counsel all the time. Every radio show, every television show, oh, that's so old school radio and television, uh, every podcast, every streaming thing is communicating to you values, desires, and expectations that are contrary, more often than not, to God's wisdom and word. So first, God, Yahweh, by giving his guidance, but also he defends his people by his power. So look at verse 24. After David inquires, well, how should I come up against the Philistines? Verse 24, when the Lord says, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Now, whether the sound of marching in the balsam trees is um, through the Philistines into a panic, thinking that there is a larger army than they anticipated, or maybe... Um, it, it cr created cover so David's army could quietly get behind and rout the Philistines. We don't know. Was God's deliverance supernatural or natural? We don't know. The point is, God granted them victory. And we see this other times, Joshua 10, Judges 7, where God sends the enemies of Israel into a panic. And sometimes it's supernatural and sometimes it's natural. The point is, God defends his people. So he defends his people through his guidance. When you seek his counsel, he defends his people through his power. Right? Chapter 5 is a breath of fresh air compared to what we've been looking at for the last two or three chapters. Where those chapters is just a picture of deceit, betrayal, subterfuge, violence, chaos, confusion, discord. Now we have a picture of unity, of promises, treaty. And the presence of God in abundance. And the narrator's pulling together all these vignettes from the, the early life of the monarchy to show, hey, this is what the kingdom's going to look like. And it's awesome. This is what the kingdom's looks like when people recognize God's anointed. But the two verses in the middle of this chapter, I think, is what brings it all together. I read it earlier, so let me just touch on it. It says, David became greater and greater. Why? How? And this is where, friends, you know, Bible study tip, don't ignore the language, right? Don't ignore the grammar. 
God used the, even the grammar. Notice the conjunction that introduces the next clause. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. What, what's the narrator saying? David's greatness had nothing to do with David. It had to, everything to do was because his God was with him. We've seen the promises of God coming to pass. Some of them were seemingly insurmountable, as if they would never come to pass. It seemed so long. And yet David, in verse 20, as, as he's seeing his enemies flee before him, he says, the Lord is like a breaking flood before me. I don't know if you've ever seen a flood. There's a lot of YouTube videos of floods. Just, it just decimates everything in its path. Nothing stands in its way. And David says, this is like the Lord. His promises were coming to pass, and nothing would thwart them from coming to pass. In verse 12, it reads, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Right, so David knows, okay, this day, God put me here as king. Yes, God did what he, what he finally did, what he said he was going to do. But notice the next phrase there, and that he had exalted his kingdom. So God had exalted David's kingdom. Why? Look at the next phrase. For the sake of Israel. In other words, the reason God had blessed and established David, the reason that David was over Israel was for Israel. God's promises to him weren't for his own blessing or his own ego or his own ambitions. God's promises to him were so that he might be a blessing to others. Friends, of all the promises of God that there are, and there are many that we can cling on to, uh, many that are wonderful, many that are fantastic, I think the sweetest, the brightest, the promise that shows you understand the heart of God more than anything is the promise that he makes to change not your circumstances, not your situation, not people around you, but the promise he makes to change you. Now you might think, this is kind of a buzzkill, man. I mean, this, this seems like a bait and switch. You were talking about the promises of God never fail. They'll always come to pass. And I'm facing down a situation that's hard. I need the Lord to intervene. I got this situation. My kids are out of control. My finances are a wreck. Yada, yada, yada. The list can go on. And you're telling me that's the big prize? God changes me? Friends, I can't think of a better promise than God changing you to be like him. Because if it's only about your circumstances and situations, guess what? They change all the time. And if that's what your hope is, you may be up one day and down the next because they're always going to change. But if God changes you here, he's changed everything. And by the way, this is exactly like his son. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, and notice the emphasis, for even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, David knew that his strengths, his victories, his leadership, his kingdom was all so that people would experience the goodness of God. Friends, is that how you see your life? That your strength, your prosperity, your assets, your home, your time, Everything that God has given to you, do you see that as the accumulation of a life well lived where you deserve these things, you've worked hard, you've earned them? There may be some truth to that fact, 
Or do you recognize that God has in his grace given you those things, not for yourself, but so that you might be a blessing to those around you? Have you seen your health, not as a reward of eating the nutritional pyramid correctly and working out five times a week, but as God's mercy so that you might serve those who have a weaker constitution around you? Do you see your wealth as a reward for picking the right career or as a means to release gospel work in the corners of the globe through our missions efforts, or friends you might know going to the mission field? Do you see your life as David saw his kingship to be given away for the good of others? If not, friends, I invite you to understand that your life is not found by living for yourself, but in giving of yourself. And we have seen enough in in 2 Samuel in our study so far of of self-serving tactics, haven't we? People trying to manipulate situations for their own political or personal gain. People vacillating between two kings trying to figure out which one is going to give the richest payoff for them. We've seen enough of self-desire, self-promotion. We've seen enough of the world of self in these three chapters. And you see enough of the world of self in your life. Chapter 5 is showing us a different picture. What the promises of God can look like when people bow the knee to God's anointed. When people trust God's plan, no matter how unlikely or unexpected those promises seem, and when people realize the promises of God for them are not just merely for their own blessing, but to be for his glory and the good of others. You see, David is a man, a king, who points to the king who serves. And the way he serves you and I is by changing you and I. And the best promise that God makes is the promise to change the very thing you live for, Change your values, change your desires, change those things, and in doing so, change your world. Do you see that in the kingdom here in 2 Samuel 5? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of the chaos of the civil war and all that's been going on in the struggle for David to become king, we see gospel truths written all through this, this chapter. Lord, in the greatest promise... I guess even greater than the promise to change us is the means by which that promise is made effective. It's because of the life and death and the resurrection of your son on our behalf that makes the promise possible. And so, Holy Spirit, we just pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't understand, hasn't hasn't taken hold of that promise, that they would do so. That they would recognize that this is a promise of eternal life. Not just in quali- quantity, but in quality that is available to us all. And it is a promise that will never be broken. It was a promise, it was a promise that will never be forgotten. The cross is a reminder to the degree at which you will go to keep your promises true. Father, you are worthy of all worship and praise. We thank you for it. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises, your faithfulness to your people. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.